Ray, but today got another guest on the show, not Ray, another American chap, although currently residing in Melbourne, Australia, John Pabon. John is the founder of uh, an organization called Fulcrum Strategic Advisors, and he is currently li living in Australia, as I said, but before that, he lived in Shanghai for about a decade. Ex McKinsey bit of an expert in sustainability and China risk minimization communication strategy. And he invited himself on to the show. I love that when the guests uh, come to me to talk a little bit about China. And that's what we did. Now, if you haven't heard our China series, we did a few episodes on China, sort of August, September 2019, where we tried to unpick a lot of the stories that we get in Western media about China. And um, it was a good follow-up to get John, somebody who not only has lived in China, but, but consults, gives strategic advice to Western businesses wanting to deal with China, come in and give me his thoughts on some of these issues. So we talk about uh, IP, we talk about are they communist or capitalist, we talk about their human rights, treatment of the Uyghurs, people like that. We cover a lot of different stuff. A um, bit of an introduction as we, before we get into it, talking a little bit about John and what he, you know, what 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 his experiences have been as an American uh, expat living in China and now Australia. But uh, then we get into the the rest of it, sort of an hour long deep dive chat on a lot of these issues vis a vis China. Great chat, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I think you will too. So here we go, John Pabon. Sure. So, uh, like I mentioned, pretty new to to Melbourne overall. I've spent the last decade in Shanghai, working in a couple different capacities. So, uh, with an American firm, working as a marketing director uh, with BSR, who are sort of the McKinsey of the sustainability world, and then eventually founding my own organization, Fulcrum Advisors, and we look at sort of the geopolitical changes and how that impacts things like sustainability, risk management, communication, so sort of the gamut of big risk factors that we feel a lot of companies kind of have their heads in the sand over, sort of ignoring the, the big things and hoping things will change. Obviously, that is not the case. Um, a bit more, more of my background, originally from Los Angeles and then through New York, working with uh, the United Nations in a couple different capacities with McKinsey and with AC Nielsen. And you're, uh, so having spent a lot of time in China, a lot of your work these days involves helping what uh, American and I assume Australian businesses figure out how to, I don't know, respond to China growing as an economic powerhouse? That's a big part of it. Yeah, we kind of have two large segments that we work with. So the first are the multinationals, and they could be American, European, Australian. It kind of runs the gamut. Um, and what they're looking for is a way to kind of future-proof themselves and to come to grips with these these shifts, particularly with China, but not necessarily just China. It could be with Asia as a whole. Uh, and the second segment we work with, which was kind of a surprise to us, are small and medium companies that are looking to increase their valuation by having the right processes in place from a risk management perspective. So they also come to us to help get a, a lay of the land. Okay. So it's not all dealing with Asia competitive stuff. You, it's a broad gamut of risk management strategic stuff that you look at. 
That's right. And when we talk to folks, we make sure even if they aren't thinking about Asia, that we pepper that in there because uh, they can't get away from it. So they need to need to figure it out from the get go. And what brought you to Melbourne? Uh, my partner is Victorian, so that's the link. And I think after 10 years in China, that's a good enough tour of duty. I deserve a beach. <laughs> but you, you went to Melbourne? Really? <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go to Melbourne for the beaches, my friend. Go to Melbourne for the uh, the cuisine but uh, <laughs> and, just, and just the lifestyle, but uh, not the beaches. Absolutely. Did, definitely a lifestyle player. How are you finding the shift to Australia? My wife's an American. She's been here coming up 11 years and I uh, she's uh, I think she's acclimatized now how are you finding the culture shift uh, yeah it's interesting because I'm sort of getting back into quote-unquote Western society I guess and Western uh, particularly around business I think it's going to be the one that's going to keep uh, rearing its head for me so it's very very slow here particularly compared to the places I've always worked so New York and Shanghai are super fast-paced uh, kind of a 24-7, always-on sort of uh, business mentality. But here, they really do love their work-life balance. Uh, I, I can't wait to get to that point, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> I look at people on the tram, you know, it's it's 5 o'clock and they're going home, and I'm thinking it's daylight outside. Why, you're supposed to be in the office. Yeah, my wife's uh, a violin teacher. She came here from Seattle, and uh, she was shocked when she came here and found that parents didn't want their kids to have a violin lesson after about seven o'clock at night because they were going to bed. She's like, I used to give kids lessons at 10 o'clock at night in Seattle. It was, you know, go, go, go. And she would, it took her a long time to realize that, yeah, we don't care that much about uh, children being prodigies. We'd rather they got a good night's sleep. Um <laughs> One of the other things I know my wife has found, and I'd be interested to know your take on this, having been out of the US for such a long time, is her perspective on the United States as a society, as a culture, has changed dramatically. Uh, I, I think it took her about five years for her to sort of, I don't know, undo a lot of the American programming that she'd grown up with. Uh, she looks at it very differently today to how she did when she first got here. Have you found that being out of the country for a long time has changed your thoughts on America? And if so, how? I'm, I'm nodding my head, you know, really uh, a lot on this other side. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And I was never really, I'd like to think I was never really a quintessential American in the sense of sort of buying into uh, all the brainwashing. Certainly there was a bit of that. But definitely having the expat experience and particularly in a place like uh, China, which is so diametrically uh, different than a place like the United States, you really do figure out very quickly how different things are from an outsider's perspective. Um, you know, seeing how the world sees the United States. And I kind of, I mean, I was in university during 9-11, so that really sort of opened my eyes to the way the world views us. Uh, studying politics as well gave me a little bit of an international flavor in terms of, uh, you know, what, what America actually is versus what an American perceives it to be. So that's kind of just evolved over time. Uh, I, it's, it's quite difficult as well being on the outside looking in at this point. I can't really influence much change beyond, you know, a Facebook post here or a vote there. So uh, that can get quite frustrating at times as well. But uh, it's definitely, and, and with my American friends that are, you know, that have had the expat experience, it's the same thing. We do realize that uh, life is very different when you're not there and people view us differently than we view ourselves. Mm. I was being interviewed on an American radio show last week uh, about my book and the host who was uh, Santa Barbara, I think, he said mm -hmm. something like, um, you know, something, something, something about, you know, the president being the leader of the free world. And I had to point out that on behalf of the rest of the world, I'd like to... <laughs> I'd like you to understand that we do not accept that the uh, President of the United States, this one or any other one, is actually the leader of the free world. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, but, right. that, but that kind of stuff, I, you know, even with friends of mine over there who uh, consider themselves to be progressive, left-leaning Democrats, um, I find that they seem to be profoundly disturbed when I refute this idea of the president of the United States being the leader of the free world, they, they, they really seem to believe that is gospel truth. Oh, you're hitting on one of the holy grails. You're not supposed to do that. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, let's let's get on to China because uh, that was the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today. We've done a number of shows here on, been on China. The news a bit lately. Yeah, they have a little bit. Yeah, now, we've done a number of shows trying to get a perspective um, on how much of what we see in the Western media about China is. Uh, pro-Western, anti-China propaganda, trying to work out, you know, what's really going on in terms of the, the political system, the economic system, and obviously I know it's a hugely complex topic. But um, I'd like, maybe we start just by, if you want to talk for five minutes or so on, giving me your introductory statement on where China's at politically and economically in 2020. Sure, absolutely. And I suppose I'll preface the whole thing by saying that even when I came to China and throughout my decade there, I've, I've never seen myself as a Sinophile, right? And I know when I get into these conversations, people look at me and sometimes they'll, they'll say quite nasty things, uh, you know, assuming that I'm some sort of a, you know, a lackey for the Communist Party. And that's not it at all. And actually in saying that, I suppose that's, I suppose that's what a lackey for the Communist Party would say. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I am not, I'm not a Sinophile. Uh, you know, I, en I enjoyed my time there, and I still will be going back and forth to China. Uh, and I was there at a very dynamic time in its history. So that is, is, of course, an extremely interesting time and place to be. Now, there are plenty of Sinophiles, people that know the history back to front, speak the language fluently, probably better than some Chinese, uh, you know, all, know all the ancient poems and all of this sort of stuff. They tend to live in Beijing. Uh, but, you know, there, there are plenty of those people, and that's not me. I always looked at China more from a certainly a political perspective, a business perspective, and a larger geopolitical international perspective. So uh, there's been so much change over the past 10 years. And as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of We'll call it propaganda, mis misinformation, misunderstanding, um, especially with this shift between the East and West. You know, we talked a little bit about how Americans don't know how others perceive them. And I think that certainly does the whole country a disservice, because if you look at a place like China, which is advancing so quickly in ways that a lot of the rest of the world can't get their head around. Um, you know, if we talk about the coronavirus and the building of the hospital in one one week, that's pretty normal in China to have something like that happen, but a lot of people just assume it's fake news, and it's not. So uh, that's just a small example. If you look at things like the rail and tra transport infrastructure that's been developed over the past five years. Um, when I came to Shanghai, for example, I think there were three subway lines, and by the, by the time I left a few months ago, there were 22. And then I compare that to my experience in New York, where it took 15 years to build the Freedom Tower. Um, so it's just, you know, so diametrically opposed to each other that it is a lot of times hard for folks to get their head around. And that's what leads them to think that it's all sort of propaganda and fake news. Uh, but it's certainly not. So that's uh, certainly one aspect of things. If you look at things that are ways that we haven't really considered China in the past. So I talk a lot about sustainability and how China is sort of this global leader in sustainability. People will refuse to listen to that message because of China's history. Am I discounting the bad things that they've done? Am I discounting their record on things like environment or human rights? No, absolutely not. They don't get a pass on that from me. But we have to look at some of the work that they're doing and the great advancements that they have made. So we can't pigeonhole China into you know, the world's factory, which I know the party hates hearing. And they're really trying to convert the whole country and the whole uh, public image of China out, out of the world's factory into more of its premier service provider. But they're still pigeonholed into the way the country was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and you see this a lot with the interpretation of things like the government. And, you know, people assume it's a communist country. And sure, I guess on paper, it kind of is. But in reality, they're far more capitalist than a lot of countries in the West, including the United States. Uh, so it's this very, very strange um, hybrid beast that the parties ended up creating for the country. And getting people in the rest of the world sort of on board with that image has proved uh, not so easy. And they certainly have not done themselves any favors as well with uh, quite large mistakes that they've made over the past 10 years. So it's sort of like two steps forward, one step back with what they're trying to do from an image perspective. One of the um, things that we, I was trying to get my head around when we were doing our China series was this question of are they communist or are they capitalist? And the a lot of the stuff that I read coming out of China and Chinese experts seemed to suggest that you know, from a from 
Deng's perspective and, uh, you know, moving on after Deng, it's just intensified. There was a recognition that uh, China, along with uh, many other countries that had communist governments in the 20th century, tried to leap too quickly from an agrarian, very early stage industrial revolution society into uh, advanced centrally controlled socialism on the on the journey to full mature communism and that you know according to marxist theory before a country could achieve even a semblance of workable socialism and it needed to go through a capitalistic period in order to build up its productive forces and that Deng recognized this and decided to reintroduce an element of capitalism into China so it could build its productive forces as a as a stepping stone to then striving for socialism now I believe that is still the um, official story that uh, the Chinese government uh, puts forward when asked about what its economic system is and where it's going. As somebody who's lived there for a long time, you might have some good insights on this. Do you do you believe that do you believe that that messaging is in fact an accurate reflection of what the strategic planners in China believe? Or is it just uh, face-saving to cover up the fact that they've thrown out any plans to be a true socialist uh, society and really it's all just a a buck grab? (laughs) Uh, I think Dung put it best when he said, you know, he promoted the idea of uh, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, or is it communism with Chinese characteristics? Uh, back when he opened up the economy in the '80s, so it, it and that's exactly what it's been ever since. It is this this strange hybrid where, yes, you're right on paper. On paper, it is a a communist system. They haven't deviated from that, and particularly under Xi Jinping, who has. Um, really embraced this idea of, of what Mao tried to do before a lot of the mistakes of the 50s and 60s. So going back to the, it, it's not as far as Mao Zedong thought, but, you know, he's really trying to go back to the, uh, you know, the good old days, I suppose, for, for lack of a better term, uh, in terms of how the government positions itself. And we have to remember that China is, because of its size, it's a lot of different countries in one. So if you're operating in the bubble of Shanghai, that is a highly capitalist society. You know, you have a Gucci on every corner, uh, people buying up the, maybe not so much as they used to, you know, their their bags and their watches and driving their their Mercedes and Ferraris down the street. So, so highly capitalistic. And that is also historical. Uh, you know, from a historical perspective, it's always sort of been the financial heart of the country. So that makes sense. If you go two hours outside of Shanghai to the countryside, they're certainly not capitalist at all. They, for the most part, are agrarian still. Uh, they, in a lot of places, do very much hold to this idea of Maoism, which for somebody coming from Shanghai uh, is, is antithetical to the way they live. So what the government's tried to do, and speaking as an outsider, of course, what the government has tried to do is kind of appease everybody by sticking with the the agrarian nature of what a socialist system is supposed to be, but also understanding that they need to evolve for the modern world and they can't stay in agrarian society. The communist experiment is sort of by and large around the world failed. So I think they certainly recognize they needed to adapt and evolve the original Leninist ideas. Well, when you say the original Leninist ideas, I think even Lenin recognised that they needed to make some changes. He, you know, had his new economic plan and was trying to reintroduce elements of capitalism into the Soviet Union early <laughs> on because he realised they needed to build up their productive forces. So I, I think even he was, you know, probably would have looked favourably upon, uh, hmm. you know, what Dung and she have been doing. Uh, but anyway, I mean, it's either way the it's it's a it's an economic miracle what 
China has Absolutely. accomplished since the 70s, right? I, I remember reading that they their economy has grown faster in the last 40 years than any economy in history. And that's part of this this ability to have command and control. So the centralized nature of the, the communist uh, government is able to do that, whereas you have a place like Australia or the United States who are highly bureaucratic, where you have to go through a number of hoops before anything gets done. Uh, China just flips a switch and it happens, which is how they've been able to leapfrog and go so quickly. Have there been mistakes along the way? Yeah, of course there have. But you know they, because of that, have been able to advance. And I think that if you look at what a lot of people compare China too, and that's India, which has a democratic system and quasi-equivalent number of people, a highly bureaucratic system in India, and they're not able to advance in the same way China has been able to with their command and control economy Mm. and governmental system. So you didn't really answer my question, though. Do you believe that from your time there and your, your strategic work that you do, your strategic thinking... Do you believe that China has a long-term plan? The strategic planners, the government, the senior levels see China as part way on a long-term plan towards socialism, or is that just uh, talk? I think that's that's just talk. I think at the end of the day, if we look down the road, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, it will evolve more into a capitalist economy. So we'll sort of look at a model kind of like what Hong Kong is. Uh, and I, I've, I've attended talks where at least, you know, at the, the beginning of last year before, you know, Hong Kong sort of went awry, the idea was to, you know, sort of liberalize the mainland economy in the way that Hong Kong has been so successful in doing. So uh, to answer your, answer your question, I think it, it will become a capitalist system. In, in many ways, shapes, and forms. Now, it's it's difficult to say 100% because you have sort of the majority of the country still living, you know, as as farmers. So how are they going to how are they going to adapt to that? Are they going to adapt to that? Because I think at the end of the day, the thing that the party is always fearful of is, you know, losing the mandate of the people. So if they start to play with this idea of bringing capitalism to, you know, agrarian society, and the people don't like it you'll see a switch really quickly. So China can turn on a dime, and it has in the past, but as I see it right now, it will become capitalist. But uh, you know, don't quote me on that if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you think Xi himself is uh, a capitalist at heart? I mean, his father was a, a major communist leader. I think it's image. I think to because he's trying to uh, you know bring back the again the good old days of of pure communist China that he would have to hold on to that from an image perspective. I think it, it, I, I don't envy the work that they have to do in Beijing. It's certainly not an easy job, but I think if they're thinking of things logically, which one hopes they are, uh, there there is really no option but to become capitalist to join the fold of the rest of you know rest of the world, which is what they want. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the country wants to they want they want validation on the world stage, so they have to play. I think they realize realize now that they have to play that way. Why, why do they want that validation, in your opinion? So, and you know, I'm you're probably going to get a lot of hate from Chinese for me saying this, but that's okay. Uh, so, I, I think there is, for lack of a better term, an inferiority complex uh, garnered over a couple of hundred to hundred years, uh, particularly after the opium wars and what they call the century of disgrace and humiliation, uh, mm. that still holds very much into the psyche of, of China as a country. So they feel the need for validation from others to get over that, uh, that sense of inferiority. They want to show that they can operate on the world stage with everybody else. And they don't need to, you know, sort of have their hands held by uh, the, the old colonial powers. That still is in the psyche of, of Chinese at a lot of levels. Um, you look at historically things like uh, World War II, and yes, a lot of atrocities happened by the Japanese, um, but that still plays into how people run their, you know, their daily lives. They hear about about what the Japanese have done. They watch TV shows about the war and what the Japanese have done. So it's sort of ingrained in them this sense of humiliation. They still watch TV shows about the opium wars. So all of these things that um, a lot of us in the West sort of go, yes, it happened, but we've gotten over it. I don't think the Chinese have. Well, I think a lot of people in the West are totally ignorant of the history Absolutely. of China. The opium wars and you know the way they were oppressed by the United Kingdom 
Uh, and then the way, you know, with the open door policy in the early 20th century, the way the United States tried to elbow their way in there to take advantage of the Chinese uh, weakness as well. Uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I totally understand how they came out of World War II uh, determined to fight for their independence again as a people with a very, very proud history, like one of the most developed, uh, advanced societies on the planet for centuries. Absolutely. The cent- really the center of the world, which is, you know, why their Chinese name is center of the world. You know, they really were for, for, like you said, for centuries. And then they have had this sort of blip on the radar over the past couple hundred years where they've tried to regain their footing. And they're still very much trying to get there. So that, again, that validation is so important to put them back on the world stage, sort of the center of the world stage. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this, but a lot of the missteps by Western countries are certainly uh, fast-tracking China's ability to do that. And what do you consider those missteps to be? Um, his name's Donald. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. is, you know, and this is interesting that you, you brought up that question at the very beginning about Americans' perception of self. Um, if Americans continue to perceive their country as the leader of the free world or, you know, the most advanced economy in the world in X, Y, and Z, uh, you get tunnel visions and you don't realize everybody's already passed you up. Uh, and that's kind of what China's been able to do is, uh, whether purposely or not, or wh- whether it's this perfect storm, uh, they've been able to fill in gaps that the Trump administration has left. And uh, I always use the example of uh, sustainability. And there was Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, the vice, the premier, speaking at Davos a few years ago. And they just made this amazing speech about you know, how China was, be- was becoming an advanced green society. And I, you know, I, I would have loved to kiss the speechwriter of it because it was just brilliant. Because everything they were doing was, you know, filling in the gaps that the United States had left after they pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, so it's not—it's not just, uh, you know, this idea of investing hundreds of billions of dollars into things like green technology. It's also this—and I don't know what the phrase would be—is it moral? Is it ethical? It's filling in this uh, this psychological leadership position that is now kind of left open. You know, the U.S. isn't doing what it's supposed to. Um, you know, large economies and developing economies like Brazil, Brazil are talking about the same thing when it comes to sustainability. The EU is doing their best, but it's more of an academic exercise for them. So who's the developing world supposed to look to? Huh, the big guy, China. Uh, and that's just one small example of ways that they're trying to use soft power, uh, certainly the way the United States did 100 years ago, to influence uh, perspectives of the country. Mm. One of the things that I am amazed by when I analyse stories about China in the Western media is they tend to fall into two distinct binary camps. There's one one kind of story which is, oh, the Chinese are communists and they're terrible. Look at their human rights abuses. Look at their mass surveillance of the people, uh, the the re-education camps for the Uyghurs. Uh, they're imprisoning people right now who disagree with their attempts to uh, uh, isolate people with the Wuhan coronavirus. There's all these. Oh my God! The you know the the Xi Jinping's <laughs> leader for life. They're horrible, horrible, horrible uh, communists. The other kind of story, which is fifty percent of the coverage, is oh, they're you know they're stealing our jobs, they're economic powerhouses, they're stealing our IP, they're an economic powerhouse, uh, they're so capitalist, it's crazy, um, you know they they've got a billion billionaires, they're just blah blah blah, blah. you know it's it's they're either <laughs> the world's greatest uh, evil communists or the world's greatest capitalists uh, there's this uh, confusion in the media like how we perceive china there's these two distinct but concurrent narratives about what china is and they may both be true as you said i mean it's a big place it's a it's a lot of people it's a complicated story but I want to talk about, I want to get your, your um, views on a couple of these stories. You know, when I think China, I think when a lot of people think China today in the West, we think uh, brutal communist dictatorship. 
Um, having having lived there for a decade, people on the ground in somewhere like Shanghai. How do they really? I mean, one of the other problems we get in the West is if you ever hear anything coming out of uh, by by uh, domestic Chinese, it's oh well, they have to say that because the government's listening. What's <laughs> what, what do you think the average Chinese citizen feels about uh, the way their country is being run right now? Yep. So uh, it's. it's- you're absolutely right. There is such a, it's not even a dichotomy. It's just a million different pieces in one. So the the image that we get in a lot of the Western media of the the evil communist or the big capitalist, they're both true, uh, you know? So uh, that's certainly one aspect of it. But if you would talk to a normal person on the street in China, and I, I have done done this before talking to friends or, or you'll get into conversations with taxi drivers, drivers a lot of times. Um, when they talk about, you know, what the government's done for them, they always point to safety, which is a basic human need, the need to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I, the second I tell them they're, that I'm an American, they talk about, oh, Americans have guns and it's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're absolutely right. Yeah, I don't feel safe going to America with guns on the streets and people being killed, you know, left, right and center every day. Mm. So, and, and I walk around the streets of Shanghai in the middle of the night, I don't worry about a thing mm. because safety is so high. So the government has been able to provide what a government is supposed to. You're supposed to provide for people's safety, for economic well-being, for uh, you know, uh, education. You know, the population is highly literate. So the government is doing what you know, uh, you know, the Greeks probably intended for a government to do back in the day. So from that perspective, if you're an individual rank-and-file citizen walking on the streets, you feel pretty good about what the government's been able to, to do for you. you know, and speaking perfectly bluntly, 30, 40 years ago, the country was not doing so well. It wasn't too far off from North Korea today. Mm-hmm. And now you have your grandkids driving a Maserati down the streets of Shanghai. Why are you going to rock the boat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things are working out pretty well. Yeah. So For the majority. You know, for the majority, that's right. And even those that are living, you know, subsist- you know uh, on less than a dollar a day mm-hmm. in the rural farming communities, even they're seeing advancements. Maybe it's not for them personally. Maybe it's for their children and grandchildren. So mm-hmm. from a long-term perspective, um, the, the family unit perspective, there are advancements happening. So there's a lot of sacrifice certainly being made by those folks, um, especially if you talk about left behind children as the parents go to big cities to work and send money back. But all of that sacrifice is uh, is for a purpose. So I think for an individual uh, Chinese citizen, that's how they would view things. Now, from a Western perspective, we look at it quite differently. You know, we look at uh, things like human rights abuses, strict control. Uh, you know, and at the end of the day, China's never really hidden that sort of stuff. We just take it as an affront because it's so opposed to our democratic values. But I guess I sort of scratched my head and go, well, weren't we kind of doing the same thing in the past? So, you know, what what ground do we have to really, you know, talk about what China's doing today and how they're running their country if they have been able to do so much for their people? Yeah, they've, I mean, there's some of the stats that I saw from the World Bank was that the the poverty rate in China in 1981, when I was 11 years old, um, I'm trying to, uh, I think when when Rick Springsteen came out with Jesse's Girl, I think 1981, <laughs> to put that in perspective, round about there. Uh, <laughs> I think of everything in terms of 80s music, John. Um their, their poverty rate in 1981 was 88%. Uh, by 2015, it was 0.7%. I mean, that is astonishing. Absolutely. The goal of the government now on paper is by, I think it's 2022, to get rid of even that amount of poverty. There will be no more poverty in the country. And when the government says it will do something, it tends to do it. And uh, yeah, and so it's not like just this perspective that it's just a very small percentage of the population that have extreme wealth and the rest are still in poverty, although I'm sure there is a massive wealth differential there as there is in the United States, um, where you still have, uh, I don't know what the percentages are per capita, but poverty, uh, fairly relatively widespread, I believe. Uh, You know, that's, it's... Been a, there's been 880 million people or something like that who, who they've brought out of poverty in a 20, 30-year period. Um, one of the other things that we think about, uh, I think, when we think about China is 
this issue of sort of the the working conditions. Um, we hear of places like Foxconn, where they <laughs> I don't know how many employees they have, like four hundred thousand people or something working in factories like Foxconn. We hear about the su- the the working conditions are so poor, the suicide rates are high, people dying at their desk and not being discovered for a week. Got any thoughts on you know the 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 reality of that that story? Yeah, so a lot of my work at uh, BSR, uh, you know, work around sustainability, of course, being in China was around factories uh, and around the sustainable supply chain. So a lot of my work took me into factories directly. So I do have direct experience in that. And I, I was always shocked every time I'd go into a factory because you do have these images of like Foxconn, right, where they have the suicide net so people can't jump to their death sort of thing. And, you know, and you imagine people living in these, you know, squalid conditions and, you know, with some taskmaster with a whip screaming at them through a bullhorn. And it's, it's not like that at all. Um, in fact, the majority of factories around China, of course, depending on industry, it's, it's different depending on sector, but the majority of them have been automated. So you go in and it's, absolutely quiet. All you hear is sort of this humming of, of machines going, and you might have a couple people running around making sure the machines are working and doing what they're supposed to, but that's kind of it. So uh, the, the, that, you know, as I was talking about earlier about this image, that's, that's the image shift that's happened in these factories. Um, you have the, you know, the central canteen where people who do work there are able to by discounted meals. You have social events that happen because a lot of people do live on the, the campus. So you have the, the social events you have, you know, a- athletic activities uh, that people participate in. So it's certainly not this idea of sort of a, a Jacob Reese sort of lower east side idea of, of work. It's It's been quite automated. And because a lot of factories are actually, you know, suppliers to Western companies, large Western multinationals like Walmart, et cetera. They kind of follow the practices that Walmart would have for its suppliers and factories in the United States. They can't get away from that. So uh, that's helped to really improve the conditions. Now, 20 years ago before I was there, I don't know how they were. I'm sure they were terrible. But today, that's certainly not the case at all. And what China's done also over the past, I think it was 2017 to 2018, they've tried to shore up a lot of the underperforming factories, whether that was a state-owned company or a supplier to a Western firm. So a lot of these smaller mom-and-pop shops that were the ones that were sort of with the terrible conditions and really polluting, or the companies that were just not following the rules when it came to uh, environmental governance, uh, health regulations, they just shut them down. And I think it was something along the order of 80% of factories in China during that period had shut down. Some permanently, some were able to get back online. But because of that, everybody sort of stood up and said, oh, my God, we better fix everything. So uh, the factory conditions in China now are, are very, very different. I mean, according to the latest figures I can see on Wikipedia, Foxconn supposedly has 800-odd thousand employees. Um, they've got to be doing something. can't be that automated. What, what are all these people doing, do you think? Yeah, so there are certain industries where, uh, for example, uh, textiles. Uh, it's It's still not automated because the machines haven't been produced to do something that a human hand can do. Right. So, and the same same with technology. I think with a lot of what Foxconn does with these small little chips, they haven't developed the machinery for it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it definitely on the five year plan for the country to improve automation in factories. Now, the X factor is what do you do with all the people, right? Nobody's asking that question. Um, one of my favorite stats was out of uh, Guangdong province, which is sort of the manufacturing base of the country. This was a few years ago. Um, the local authorities said by 2020, we are going to automate 80% of our factories. I don't know if they've done it. Wow. And certainly nobody ever asked, what are you going to do with the people? You know, so there are always these uh, these targets set, but nobody's looking at the long-term implications. What do you do with the 800,000 at Foxconn who are out of a job? Yeah. Not sure. I mean, and with the suicides too, I don't know if this is true, but I did read somewhere that the suicide rates, you know, per employee in the company were fairly standard. Um, they just have so many employees that it looks like a big number. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't have too much of an insight into into suicide rates and um, Chinese psychology overall, but I would venture to guess guess it's it's probably pretty on par. 
especially if you're working long hours, the stress of being probably away from your children who are thousands of miles away in the home province would have mm. to get to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the stress of working 16 hour days uh, and having to send all that money back, I'm mm-hmm. sure contributed to all of that. How much mm. of that was Foxconn's fault and how much of that is just because of, uh, you know, how fast the country is, has developed economically. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm sure it was a mix. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the IP issue. Uh, one of Donald Trump's favorite things to bring up when he talks about China. Uh, China. China. They, um, <laughs> now, from what I read, uh, there is still a certain amount of IP theft, but I've read that the country, uh, the government's been taking it very seriously and uh, just trying very hard to crack down on IP theft and has made a lot of progress. Uh, what's, your, what's your position on China and IP theft? Yeah, so it's absolutely right. So over the past 10 years, we've seen a, a huge amount of effort being put in by the central government to prevent IP theft. And a lot of that stems from this very strange quirk in Chinese psychology that a lot of people think is cute, but when it comes to you know international IP, it's it's not so cute. So you look at things like you know, when you'll see Chinese copying the name of a company and maybe adding a little, you know, tweak here and there to it. And people assume that's just theft, right? Like my favorite, and you'll probably have to bleep this out, is Starfucks. So uh, those are sort of, you know, you'll see those in the second and third tier cities. There's, there's Starfucks all over the place. And it's, you know, we look at it as, as theft and as them not being bright enough to come up with their own ideas. But in reality, for a for a lot of them, it's a sign of respect that your brand is so well-recognized and, and so amazing that we want to emulate that, right? So that also trickles down into to IP. Now, when you do that at scale, you have a problem, right? Because then you're, 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 you are actually stealing. So a lot of what China's been able to do and how their IT uh, infrastructure has been able to advance so quickly is because they've used existing technology and they've used that as their base instead of starting from scratch and having to create things from nothing they've had a a pretty good head start based on what the west has already created so they've seen nothing wrong in doing that and you know as i speak through it i'm not sure there's anything wrong in doing that either if i look back to grad school and writing my thesis you know you were supposed to use you know research that had already been done by somebody else and build on top of that that's Mm -hmm. kind of what the chinese are doing with technology um that scares a lot of people, particularly uh, Mr. Trump, the uh, leader of the free world, because it's it's superseding the normal way things are supposed to be. America is supposed to be the leader in IT and technology. China's not supposed to be that. So, you know, the default is, oh, they must be stealing things. They can't do that on their own. So I know that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question and, and my position on everything, but... Uh, the government is doing a much better job now of shoring up IP concerns, IP theft. I think it's up to the rest of the world, particularly the uh, United States states in Europe, to recognize that. And if you go back to the like 18th and 19th century, the early days of the Industrial Revolution in the West, there wasn't a great deal of IP protection People would invent something in uh, Manchester and it would be copied in, uh, I don't know, Philadelphia. Um, You know, there wasn't protection. Protection didn't really become a a big thing until, you know, the the middle of the 20th century when we started building these international organisations to try and monitor and moderate these things. Of course, by that stage... (laughs) <laughs> the uh, Western economies had already profited from IP theft mm-hmm. and then they became leaders in the development of IP and they wanted to prevent anyone stealing it. <laughs> it's like I always say about World War Two. you know, the, the basis of World War Two was that Germany and Italy and Japan wanted to do what the United States and the United Kingdom and France uh, had done before them which was expand their territory to get access to more natural resources. And uh, the, the United States and the United Kingdom said, sorry, uh, sorry, you must have missed the memo. No, the, uh, the cutoff for that territorial expansion was uh, 
30 years ago. You can't, uh, sorry, you can't do that now. Uh, why not? Well, we just decided that no, you can't do that anymore because we, we're here now. We got what we wanted. Yep. We're powerful. Uh, now the window has closed. It's a bit, it's a, it's a bit like tariffs, right? The, yep. <laughs> the, the United <laughs> States massively used tariffs to build its economy. A lot of your most famous presidents talked about what a great thing tariffs were. Abraham Lincoln said, give us a protective tariff and we will have the greatest nation on earth. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> said, the country has acquiesced in the wisdom of the protective tariff principle. It is exceedingly undesirable that this system should be destroyed or that there should be violent and radical changes therein. Our past experience shows the great prosperity in this country has always come with a protective tariff. And then, of course, you get to the late 20th century and uh, it was, I think it was only under sort of the Reagan and Bush administrations that they started to say, oh, you know, tariffs are a bad thing. No one else can have tariffs. Uh, you know, we, we want free trade without tariffs. And then, of course, as soon as the US economy is in trouble again under Trump, what does he do? He brings back tariffs. Oh, no, no, tariffs are good now. Tariffs are great. <laughs> like, it's the, the, the fucking hypocrisy of yes. the United States with these sorts of issues boggles my mind, but uh, it seems to me that the American public just uh, moves like a reed in the water with this kind of stuff. It's good, it's bad. It's a, it's, it's very sort of, uh, uh, not Brave New World, what was he? <laughs> 1984, you know, we're... Yeah, we're at war with the with uh, Eurasia. No, we're at war with Oceania, and Eurasia have always been our friends. I don't know. I mean, it, it just sort of boggles my mind at the uh, the 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 lack of understanding of how these things are used as tools to punish growing economies. The exact same tools that the West used to grow now are, are punished and demonized when places like China use them. But as you say, they are even trying to cut that down because, you know, I think they're powerful enough now that they don't need to be stealing IP. They, they can develop their own. Well, yeah. And that's, that's, I think the thing is that the advancements made in technology in China you know, they just they boggle the mind. So it, they've made so so much happen so fast that they don't need the West anymore. We don't need to steal America's IP. America's IP is obsolete. China's created 5G. <laughs> Why do we need 3G from the United States? What's mm -hmm. the point of that? Mm. Uh, and I remember being in a meeting a, a couple of years ago. It was in our offices in San Francisco, and you know, Silicon Valley, capital of IT world, and they were talking about Facebook payments, the the beta version coming online. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, relatively soon. And I was just thinking, you know, we've been using our phones to pay for everything for the past three years. I don't even use a wallet anymore. Mm -hmm. But yet you guys apparently think you're the most advanced in the world because you happen to be in Silicon Valley. Mm. That's a terrible position to be in because, like I said before, they don't realize everybody else has already leapfrogged past them. Let's talk about human rights abuses in China. Um, you know, we've got sort of got the the Wuhan situation at the moment, where there's talk about. I've still uh, got to get back onto the mainland to get my dog, so be careful what you ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask you. Be careful how you answer. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Too uh, <laughs> I um, I I I was talking with an American military. Uh, person recently um at a social event and he is gearing up he's like oh yeah it's it's all about gearing up to defend ourselves against china man we've got to defend ourselves against china I'm like really it's <laughs> china's the worry why is china the worry oh china they're bad like, really why why is that he said well look what they're doing with the uyghurs they're putting all the uyghurs in camps mm. millions of uyghurs in camps I'm like okay um, but the United States has the highest incarceration per capita uh, on the planet, as far as I know. Why? Why? Well, no, it's it's the Uyghurs we got to worry about. Tell me about tell me about China's position on the Uyghurs and what you think about how they're why they are dealing with that in the way that they're dealing with it. Yeah, so, if you uh, if I you actually, care to. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the out. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to uh, do a bit of a vacation through uh, Xinjiang, which is where the Uyghurs are from. Uh, and that was before everything, the, the shit hit the fan. Um, so I was sort of there as they were starting to close up 
allowing foreign tourists to go. I, I still even had to have a Chinese escort with me. So um, I, I was kind of there during that time. And, you know, you see these pictures of the, the quote unquote camps, whatever you want to term them, the camps, the education facilities, whatever they are. Um, and, and you just, you, they look horrific, but if you're on the ground, you know, and walking through a place like Kashgar, everybody is happy. Everybody is going about their lives. Yeah. It, it might be manufactured happiness. Sure. But you know, people, they're just going about their lives as if, uh, nothing is happening. They, they know that these camps exist and, uh, you know, what, the, what the government is doing, but, uh, you know, life goes on. So that sounds kind of harsh actually, but my position, I guess on the camps is, and I know a lot of people are not going to like hearing this, the camps are meant to do re-education in the hopes of preventing terrorism and separatism, right? So if you look at Xinjiang, uh, a lot of folks in Xinjiang are trying to create their own country, East Turkmenistan, I think is the name of it. And China doesn't like that because it goes against the idea of the central nature of the party and this idea of Chinese being unified. You have the same issues with Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau. Uh, and a lot of little islands in the South China Sea. So they want a unified China. So the idea that a part of the country would break away and create their own nation is uh, that's a no-go area. So these these camps are certainly for, uh, to counter terrorism and to uh, counter separatism. Now, in the sense of terrorism, you know, China doesn't have terrorist attacks. They might have somebody, you know, get disgruntled and go into a kindergarten with a, a you know, a meat cleaver once in a while. But, you know, they certainly don't have planes flying into buildings. And I would question why in the West we haven't done more. You know, if this continues to rear its ugly head, if we're still fighting against, you know, you know, terrorism in all its ugly forms, uh, maybe China's got it right. <laughs> and that's not a very PC thing to say, but you know what? I don't know what they're doing in the camps, but uh, you know the knock-on effect is they certainly don't have to worry about people blowing themselves up in the street. Mm. And the the people they're putting to the camps. Can you can you? I mean, I'm, again, I'm just <laughs> I don't want to assume that you know everything about China, but um, can you give for for the audience? Can you give them sort of a, a quick breakdown of the Uyghurs and why the Uyghurs in particular are being targeted? Yeah. So the Uyghurs as a people are uh, traditionally Muslim. So it's, it's a highly Muslim community. Uh, they are more Asiatic than they are Chinese. So they uh, would look like somebody from, uh, let's say, the Caucasus region, right? So when I go there as a, a white American, a lot of people assume that I'm a Uyghur because I sort of look the same. Uh, a lot of China's traditional uh, communities. So there's 56 tribes, as they call them in China. You know, you have the Han Chinese, which are the ones we normally associate with China. They're 90 something percent of the population. But then you have these 55 other tribes who make up the rest of the Chinese people. Uh, a good majority, I think it's something like 25 to 30 of these tribes live in that area where the Uyghurs are in the Xinjiang province area and also in Tibet. So it's, it's a highly cultural area, uh, but it's very diametrically opposed to the majority, the Han Chinese, right? They look different. They have a different religion. They practice different things and they live in a different area. Uh, the connection with traditional China has gone back a thousand plus years, right? So there is a direct link with the Silk Road, with uh, dynasties and with a lot of Chinese history. So there is a historical link. It's not manufactured. Uh, so the people they're putting in the camps now are ones that are, you know, they're, they're teenage men, or older men, ones they would view as potentially extremist, uh, whether that's with separatism or with uh, with terrorism. So the idea behind the camps, as far as I understand, is to uh, re-educate in a couple different ways, to certainly alleviate ideas of extremism, but also to, and this is the part that a lot of people say is the, you know, is, is not okay, is to bring them into the Han fold, right? So to teach them the Chinese way of being. So, you know, sort of, get rid of your own culture and become our culture so that they can unify all the different areas. And I think that's the part where people take, uh, take issue with the camps because it is stepping on, you know, a, a thousands of year old culture. A form of cultural genocide, trying to wipe out that's the culture. What it is. Yeah. Sure. You don't see that on the street though. As I was mentioning, you know, everybody is, is going, it, it's an extremely cultural place. You know, people wear traditional garb and they do, you know, it's sort of like going uh, into a time machine back into the Silk Road. It's an amazing place. So if they are trying to commit cultural genocide, they're not doing a very good job. 
So what, like the population of these areas um, where they live, I think there's something like 12 million Uyghurs and China has supposedly got somewhere between a million and three million I've read in these re-education camps. So it's not like they've rounded up the entire Uyghur population, maybe 10% of it. Mm -hmm. The ones they consider to be demonstrating signs of extremism. At least on paper. Uh, I'm sure there have been some others that have been caught up in the net, right, mm. as, as happens with these sort of things. But that's that's on paper what they're doing, yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk, getting back to uh, business for a bit, um, you mentioned 5G before. Uh, you know, it's been interesting watching what's going on with Huawei over the last year or so um, with the arrests and the uh, uh, banning of them from participating in network rollouts, including here in Australia. I think in the United Kingdom, just in the last week, they've been given a bit of a reprieve. Do you have any thoughts on what's going on there? I, I think it certainly comes down to, again, the threat of uh, a couple of different things. Certainly China uh, having superiority in the technology space where you know there's, we want to keep them in their box sort of thing. There's an element of that. There's an element of fear you know, stoked up through media of, you know, what this all means. Are they going to steal our IP? Are they going to be able to spy on us? Right. Um, and maybe they will be, I don't know. Um, but you know what, you, I, you, you talk to an Alexa or a Siri and, you know, they're probably listening, Jeff Bezos is probably listening to you too. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think there's, there's certainly more fear than fact when it comes to preventing uh, Chinese 5G from, from going around the rest of the world. And uh, again, this idea of, you know, putting them back in their box and maybe that will buy places like the like America the time to advance so that they can have their own 5G. Um, I don't know much about the the economics behind 5G. I know there's a lot riding on this in terms of uh, you know economic uh, economic growth and, and capital injection um, on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars but uh, there, there's a lot riding on this, so you can't just let the Chinese come in and you know launch their 5G. At least that's the perspective that a lot of folks are taking right now. Mm. So they arrested the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, when she was in uh, Vancouver, I think, supposedly for breaching U.S.-imposed bans on Iran, on dealing with Iran. Why? the CFO of a Chinese company can be uh, arrested on orders from the United States for something that has got nothing to do with uh, a Chinese company. I'm not exactly sure how the legals of well, that work. <laughs> Don't think too hard about that one. Um, but yeah, this whole story, like it's, uh, you know, the way I run this show, John, is I, I tend to talk about media stories that just kind of, there's something smells off about them all the time. One of my big ones for the last six months has been Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Ukraine story, where every story I read about it in the so-called, in, in the non-Fox media, right, in the so-called leftist media, have exactly <laughs> the same quote. Um, there is absolutely no evidence that uh, Joe Biden or Hunter Biden committed any crime, and we're certainly not suggesting that they did anything wrong. In every, like, it's verbatim in every <laughs> article. And I swear to God, every media organization in the United States has received some sort of a warning from Biden's <laughs> lawyers to say if you mention this, you must include this line or we will sue for defamation. Because that's the only way to explain the fact that on paper, the whole Hunter Biden Ukraine thing looks as dirty as fuck. And yet every media article has this exact, this exact same wording. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest any wrongdoing. I'm like, really? He got the fucking job. He can pay $50,000 a month for doing nothing. That is evidence for wrongdoing. That, that right there. That at least deserves an inquiry, surely. Anyway, so but the 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 Huawei way it was another one of these. They're like, oh, we we don't want them to roll out five G because we're worried they're gonna put something in the technology to spy on us. And they're like, yeah, well, a 
isn't the NSA already doing that? And B, isn't right. it a little bit late to worry about that now? China's been building all of your technology for 30 years and now, now we're worried? And, you know, I was watching something and, and some officials from South Korea basically said, you know, you let us come in, you know, 30 years ago, didn't have a problem with us. You know, what? so it's 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 a China thing. It has nothing to do with, with you know, technology or what. It's, it's just, a, it's about putting China back in its place. And it's the silliest thing, you know. And I think she's, the CFO is still under house arrest in Vancouver. Granted, it's, you know, a $15 million house. So she's doing all right. But, uh, you know, she's, she's still locked away. So, and it's a tit for tat thing because now in China, uh, I think around that same time, they, they brought up a couple of Canadian uh, students on drug charges in China, right? Which, which carries the weight of execution, which never happened. But, you know, it's this tit for tat thing. And, you know, when you get into that sort of a scenario, there's, there's no getting out of it. So uh, it's, 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 at this stage, it's just being petty. Uh, one of her defense lawyers, uh, Gary Botting, one of the leading experts on extradition law, has described her extradition case as silly and obviously a political type of enterprise that the United States is engaged in. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the Chinese hmm. have a view on things and they could be quite uh, petty and political. So hmm. I only see them winning on this one. <laughs> it's a bit like the, the Julian Assange extradition that the US is pressing for now. Um, I know you're not an Aussie and you probably think about this at some remove, but he's from Melbourne. So you're in his hometown now. Um, even when I'm in, I've been in discussions supporting Assange for for, for many years uh, since his house arrest, and and even again these sort of so-called progressive left-leaning Democrats in the United States, and they, they who are supporting his extradition and being put up on criminal charges in the United States, they say it's for it's for treason. They say he's a fucking Australian. How can an Australian? <laughs> be up on treason charges for sharing American intelligence. What the fuck is wrong with you? Well, he still he still shouldn't have done it. Uh, like, it, I don't know, man. There's this level of insanity in the American... Well, getting back to my wife, um, when she first moved here, we had an agreement that um, we would move back to the US when my... I have a couple of boys, teenage boys from a previous marriage and she when they finished high school and were adults we would move back but since then we've had our own kid who's now five and you were having dinner the other night with two she goes there's no way i would want him to grow up in the united states like with having to worry about my kid going to school and my getting shot and going through metal detectors and you know, and and just the 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 toxic environment over there right now Uh, do you do you have any children I don't have children uh, and, you know, no plans right now just because of uh, issues like that. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, again, this is one of the things that I don't think Americans really understand how we perceive, like, just the gun issue, the lack of health care issue. Um, from an Australian perspective, m- most of us look at the United States and just think the country is batshit crazy. Like the, the argue, I did a I did a whole series of gun control on this uh, on this podcast years ago. Um, we were talking about the Second Amendment uh, as the justification for uh, people having guns. I said, yeah, if you if you stood up in Parliament in any other country in the world and said, well, according to what somebody said <laughs> in uh, seventeen eighty six. Therefore, we should do X. They would laugh you out of the fucking parliament mm-hmm. building. Who give, like in this country, you know, Captain James Philip came here and uh, brought the first British convicts here in like late 1770s and then was the first governor of New South Wales. If somebody stood up in parliament debating an issue, contemporary and said, well, according to Captain James Philip, the way to handle this situation, <laughs> fuck off. Are you, what are you smoking? (laughs) Share it around at least. Like it is absolute insanity to give two fucks apart from, you know, putting it in historical context, what somebody wrote down in the 1700s. It's insanity. These are are sacred texts for us. And, you know, we we talk about the founding Mm. fathers as if they're infallible, right? And, you know, there's reasons why we have amendments to the Constitution because, you know, times change. It's been 300 years, you know. There was a brilliant uh, meme. It had had George Washington's face and it said, you know, 
talking about the Second Amendment. I was talking about fucking musket rifles. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the founding tax dodgers, as I like to call them, because really that's what it was about. They didn't want to pay taxes, right? That's what. True. Yeah. True. All right, John. Well, we've done we've done a good hour, I think. That should keep people busy for a while. But um, I really enjoyed the chat, and it would be great to have you back on to talk about more China-related issues and other things um, over Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Assuming we both survived the zombie apocalypse, yeah. Yeah. And uh, hey, listen, I'll be in Melbourne uh, in sort of early March doing one of the uh, first screenings of my new film. So um, I hope you'll come along and uh, be nice to meet face to face. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Um, Now, if people want to learn more about Fulcrum or yourself, where's the best place for them to go to check you out? Yeah, you can check out uh, the Fulcrum website. So it's fulcrum22.com. Uh, and then just look me up, John Paybon, on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, we can connect there for sure. You couldn't get fulcrum.com? You, you, there was like 21 Fulcrums before you? I think there were, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Thanks, John. Cheers. Thanks so much. Shit. Don't bullshit. 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 Fucking bullshit.